Okay, well, welcome to the latest episode of EdTech Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. With me today, Kelly Campbell. Kelly, congratulations. You are the, uh, still, I'd say six months or five months in as the new president of Discovery Education. Uh, I'm really happy uh, that you were able to spend some time with us today. No, thank you very much, Kevin. Happy to be here and thank you for the congratulations. I, I, I've been starting out most of my conversations these days with a question, because uh, speaking with folks like you, starting a new job as a leadership position in a major ed tech corporation during the middle of a pandemic, uh, it was probably around the end of December, right? I think when you, when you took the position. Uh, how does that happen? I mean, I, I still have trouble getting to the supermarket with a mask on properly and back uh, to my home where at the same time, you know, major maneuverings are happening in this space and in the industry. Give us a little insight about how something like that happens and how do you transition into a position such as that uh, while I'm assuming we're still kind of in some sort of lockdown or in, certainly not in the office, as you said. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, I have the, the great uh, honor and benefit in this case to have been part of Discovery Education since 2006. And even prior to that, I was with a company that was acquired by Discovery Education. So I've been part of the journey for nearly 21 years at this point. And so uh, a year ago, a little more now, I guess you have to say, than a year ago when the pandemic first hit, I was in a role that was focused primarily on international, so uh, creating growth opportunities for discovery education overseas. And uh, after the pandemic really took hold and it became evident that the platform and the content and the solutions that we offered on a day-to-day -day basis could really be a uh, kind of a foundational crutch to equity of content for not only our U.S. schools, but our overseas schools. Um, it was our moment to, to really be a, a partner to all the school systems and, and uh, around the world. And uh, it was actually, uh, in terms of the pandemic, if you think back in April of 2020, some of those days were really hard to wake up. You didn't know what you were going to face. The news was so bad. And I was able to get up every day and actually feel like I was making a difference. And it was so critically important, I think, to everybody who works at Discovery Education's mental state. And if we could help one teacher or one parent or one student, it made all the difference. And I was so happy to be working with a team that was excellent in so many ways. And many of the people at Discovery Education came out of school systems, either former teachers or former administrators. And so we were able to really hear from all of them and hear directly from our partners on what they needed and, and be able to respond. Um, simultaneously, we had been going through a bit of a leadership shift and our um, CEO, uh, Paul Ilse, became chairman of our board. Scott Kenny, um, as you know, he'd also been with Discovery Education a long time, stepped into CEO, and then he had asked me to step over to president. So it was a bit of a personal evolution, and quite frankly, only only possible because of the amazing team that I'm surrounded by. Right, and I remember as you, as you mentioned that last April, and I spoke with Scott, and at that point, the entire industry seemed to be in a state of uh, triage. Uh, to where it was really just, as you said, to try to help students and to the industry's credit and to Discovery's credit. Um, the description I heard was that, you know, we were an ed tech company. 
and now we're now we're customer service companies, basically just fielding calls from from folks in terms of trying to get connected. Uh, do you think that that group experience will change the industry uh, in the future in the way that uh, it works with schools, and more specifically, how it works with families and parents in particular? I hope so, right? I, I think that's the answer. I don't think we can ever go back to where we were. There were great things as a kind of an industry and uh, the ed tech industry and schools themselves. There were great things about the way things work. Um, but now we know there were things that need to be put in place that for whatever reason, inertia or budgets or you know innovation hadn't yet occurred. And that crisis of triage, I like that word because that's how it felt like every day was triage. Uh, forced um, many companies and many schools to really innovate and push things forward. And I saw that on a global scale, right? There were ministries of education who had to shift their entire way of uh, delivering content and, uh, and assessing or not, right? Or getting kids into classrooms or not. And in a lot of cases, that question of how can I provide equitable access to a parent so that they can be the conduit for the child needed to be answered. And so um, I do think collectively as an industry, we've all learned a lot. And then in Discovery Education, our conversations are about that, about uh, what needs to be changed from our learning platform perspective in or order to enable some sort of hybrid environment indefinitely because there's probably going to be a need for some sort of hybrid environment indefinitely. And so whether those are communication tools or quizzing tools or um, engagement or uh, accessing information at, at, at point of point of use, um, these all have gone into the consideration of what we're doing to lift our platform to the next stage. And I'm certain um, all the kind of ed tech colleagues around the globe are having the same conversations and hopefully we're all kind of collectively raising the bar. Right. Well, I mean, and Discovery, I know, is, is a, a veteran of remote setups. I mean, the, the, before the pandemic, BP, um, you know, there, there were solutions there with your devices and with your curriculum to be delivered uh, at home or, or, you know, outside of the classroom. Uh, talk a little bit about any strategic changes that you just kind of mentioned there, looking at the platform. Were there any things that worked especially well, or and were there some things that didn't work at all? And, and how were those pivots uh, over the past year uh, in that discovery process, pardon me? Yeah, well, so we were um, a, a bit uniquely positioned in that our entire business grew off of digital, right? So we were um, digital first all along. So I think there was um, probably a, a bit of an easier transition for us. Um, we've always believed that the teacher is the cornerstone of a classroom. So a lot of our, our tools, our platform, our content, our functionality is built with teacher first in mind, um, which of course makes a lot of sense. But when you come to a situation where that teacher is overloaded trying to make a shift to hybrid learning. And frankly, I think the hardest, uh, what I've witnessed firsthand, the hardest scenario is hybrid. You've got kids, some kids at home, some kids in the classroom. It's probably better all, in the, all at home or all in the classroom because that yeah. in between is incredibly difficult for a teacher management perspective. And so where we found a foundational pivot is saving teachers time. We always had that in mind, but saving teachers time in a hybrid environment, teachers need something that's grab and go. It's ready to use. It's, you know, we have 
at Discovery Education, hundreds of thousands of pieces of content. We have our digital tech books that um, can replace a textbook in the classroom. But how can a teacher come in very quickly at the beginning of the day, grab a lesson that can be immediately signed to her students and then be collected through some sort of evidence of learning? And it's, um, it's, it's a bridge that seems simple in theory, but going from teacher-centric to student-centric and being able to still have the teacher at the foundation of the learning takes a lot of user experience uh, kind of transition. And you know, that's been a core focus of our work over the last 12 months in particular, is the, the easier we can make it for the teacher to very quickly find what he or she needs and implement it in the classroom or or not in the classroom, I guess is how I should word it, uh, makes it not only more simple for her, but for her or him, but makes it more simple for the parent or the student on the receiving end. Yeah, well, you just mentioned parent, uh, this new core of teaching assistants that have suddenly appeared uh, out of uh, what appears to be thin air. I've been writing about education technology for 15 years. I've probably written five stories uh, that actually talked about parents before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, products and services are all, always marketed to teachers. I mean, maybe students as they get older at the high school level, certainly superintendents, uh, certainly directors of curriculum were always a focus. Now, all of a sudden, there's a brand new uh, customer segment, right? Can you talk a little bit about uh, Discovery's uh, attention to the parents? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, um uh, thinking of the parent as part of the overall community in a student's learning, right? So being able to be informed about what my, my child should be working on, being able to support my child in whichever environment in class or, or at home, and being able to provide the information in a way that is um, kind of easy and intuitive. Yeah. So whether you're trying to support a, a first grader um, with a ready-to-use activity at home, that's let's, let's say that the teacher's assigned it, but I still... I have an eight-year-old, so I was living this. He was in first and second grade, right? Um, but being able to use, um, let's see, a ready-to-use science activity that's going to take 15 minutes, but I have the materials, right? And or, and or it's fully digital, and he can interact with it, and I can observe and support. Um, I think that has been, the the again, that, that bridge that we've had to go from just kind of pushing information perhaps to the teacher or pushing information, I'm sorry, to the teacher, to the parent, right? They, they've been the conduit, is now making it so intuitive at that point of use that the parent can be that coach or support or in any individual moment, actually the classroom teacher. Yeah, yeah. I like, and talk about um, how that may affect the way you provide or even market uh, Discovery Education as a company? Is, is there more of an attention paid to feedback from parents than maybe there was before? It's something we're certainly um, very attuned to. Our, our relationship, our kind of firsthand relationship is always going to be B2B. It's always yeah. going to be you know, uh, business to school, to district, to um, country, in some cases, sure. since we work with ministries of education, um, probably not a, a consumer-based, a direct-to-consumer-based approach, because again, we feel like the, the benefit of our learning platform is being able to provide that kind of scope and sequence for learning. However, as you point out, um, I think in the past, people would think of a student as a stakeholder in that continuum. And now really the parent is a stakeholder in that continuum. And so being able to collect the information from the parent, understand what we can provide and the, whether it's 
whether it's tools or it's communications or information, um, different interfaces. Uh, we always had gone with the basis of the student access was the same as the parent access. Mm -hmm. right? the, the parent would be maybe standing over the shoulder. Kind of we're reevaluating that. Is there, those are different ways to interact to make it um, a little more seamless for the parent to understand where their child is in a continuum. But we'll always be, we'll always stick to our core, right? We're, we're, we're teacher first and, and driving that education through the relationship with the school. Right. Um, yet another aspect of um, the complete upheaval of society, uh, specifically within education, is the idea of assessment, right? Um, what you see the current state of the SAT and the ACT. A recent survey just came out this week about uh, a vast majority of teachers and students don't have much trust in the AP exams. Um, I don't think there was ever any love loss for state testing uh, mm -hmm. in, in terms of uh, uh, literacy before the pandemic. It didn't happen in, in, in most cases last year and in this year's in kind of a state of disarray. Uh, how does discovery look at the state of assessment um, going forward? I mean, let's, it's, we know where it's, what it's like right now, but is this an opportunity where maybe we can begin to finally remove ourselves from the bubble test and start to find new and better ways to assess students? Oh gosh, well, that would be, that'd be delightful on so many levels, would yes. it not to be able, I mean, yes. uh, you've been in the business for 15 years and we've all talked about the idea of a student portfolio and being able to evaluate a student at a more holistic level. Um, we're probably still a ways away from that, but again, maybe this is the best catalyst for a change. Maybe it's a forced change. And the way we kind of look at um, assessment in a continuum, because we're not in high stakes assessment, uh, but given that we have digital textbooks that replace a textbook in a classroom, you need a, um, a, a unit assessment. Uh, we embed formative assessment. Uh, some of the tools that we're currently enhancing are specifically related to being able to pull um, the students along the way to embed quizzes directly in like a, a, a video or an interactive and really at point of view to understand um, how that student is performing and if they're gathering the information so that that can be immediately dashboarded to a teacher. Um, so for us that is uh, kind of that's the real the promise of ed tech right being able to have that uh, continuous feedback so you can then send along the the right kind of content if student a is not capturing this aspect of it but student b is not capturing a totally different aspect of it um, and that i think is something that um, there's at least in our part of the world we're really concentrating on is mm. improving that teacher workflow, information gathering from the student, and that formative assessment be a, a part of the learning process so the student even doesn't even realize they're being assessed. Yeah. Uh, another reason why I wanted to have you on, on the show uh, was a recent essay that you, you wrote uh, that was posted up, I saw it on, on LinkedIn, uh, uh, about uh, gender roles in the industry. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, here's something we can talk about that it's not necessarily directly related to COVID, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, on the other hand, I think just like we talked about the changes in assessment, uh, that maybe this particular period of time might be a catalyst of change for some of the things that you wrote about. Can you talk a little bit about what, what inspired you to, to write about that topic? 
Yeah, so it was uh, Women's History Month in, in March, so there's a lot of opportunity for reflection, and um, Discovery Education hosts a monthly program called Equity Talks uh, that actually did launch out of COVID, um, but it, it, act, it evolved in terms of the, the need for you know, cultural authenticity and equity and access for all students, and we started a separate subsection of Equity Talks around Kind of women CEO in, in education. And um, I, I literally was reflecting the night after I had hosted one of those equity talks and just put it down on paper because I don't think the statistics have changed much at all since I've started looking at this, where there's three quarters of the overall workforce in K-12 education in the U.S. Three quarters are female, but something like 87% of the superintendents are male. And that's it's just distorted. And so how do we collectively, again, um, approach this, think about it, and be really deliberate about how we're addressing it and, and create opportunities for all of these women who are already in the workforce to grow into those leadership positions? Um, so, you know, that was kind of the, the motivation behind behind starting up the article. And I've received a, a, kind of a lot of, of positive feedback around that the topic. Yeah. So when you say deliberate, I mean, is that a, a slow and deliberate or is it, do you see it as something that could be a little bit more uh, aggressive uh, in terms of its transition? Or is it just kind of you have to wait for a retire out and, and to move in and, and be deliberate in your next selections? Well, I mean, so far it's been slow. <laughs> so hopefully deliberate would be a little more um, aggressive on the speed scale. And when I, you know, I think about the, the conscious and deliberate statement, um, it's from the perspective of, uh, I think all of us, mentoring comes to mind, right? Like, so I can be a mentor for other females in the ed tech industry. Um, I can provide in that mentorship career pathways that they may consider. Um, but it goes farther than that, right? It's, it's advocating. It's advocating for young talent. It's providing them with um, kind of visibility into uh, different ways they can get involved. It's making sure they're confident that they can get a seat at the table. Um, you know, there was a, a quote that came up during the equity talks about if you don't have a seat at the table, bring in a folding chair, right? And uh, you know, my perspective is make a bigger table, right? right? Like everybody who's sitting at that table should take notice and, and you know, either scoot over metaphorically or yeah. go to another room, right? Yeah. It's, um, we all have to be conscious of what's, what's occurring. And you know, frankly, in Zoom calls, it's been interesting to see that dynamic play out because I am often in, you know, Zooms of a dozen people and 10 of them might be male. And there is, I think, uh, until Zoom introduced the raise your hand function, there was always <laughs> yeah. like a talking over one another. And yeah. you, you almost have to uh, it, exhibit those behaviors that would be really quite rude <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> and again, as a collectively, we have to like point a finger to the person that you might not hear from and say, yeah, and what do you think? And yeah. we just have to be really conscious of that. Yeah. Well, in, in, in another way, I mean, could you say that, um, Zoom has punctured some of those dynamics too? I mean, like if you were going into a, a boardroom with uh, 10 other executives who were all male, I would assume that the dynamic would be, would be different as well and that this maybe 
equalizes it or it's just we're all in the Brady Bunch now right so it kind of <laughs> takes a lot of some of the traditional gender-based sort of things and throws throws them out the window yeah that's true in a lot of ways we're all a three by three box now right? yeah <laughs> so there is definitely a leveling and also i do think it opens up the ability for everybody to participate right because you don't have to fly to a meeting or you can invite more people to be included even to to listen in and have access again to the information so there's um there's definite positives to it I think the 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 downside of Zoom has has probably been the people who are less likely to speak up. Then mm. those are the ones you have to look out for, yeah. because the um, you know the the brightest opinion, the, uh, the 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 kernel of truth might be from someone who's just hesitant to barge in uh, right. into the conversation, and uh, or. Um, it, we've we've talked. I've, I talk a lot to other kind of female colleagues about always have your always have your video on right it, it gets exhausting frankly yeah. I <laughs> and i yeah. often turn off my own video so yeah. i don't look at myself all day long right right but it's um that being present is is important and it's it's funny how much uh, somebody's going to write a dissertation on this i'm sure about totally. how the zoom dynamic has has kind of changed a, a meetings and and business in general yeah when you see um us going back to normal, whatever that's going to be, and whenever it's going to be. Uh, do you see remnants of this sticking around as well? I mean, do you think you'll be on planes less, uh, even from an international perspective, uh, and, and Zooming more? Hopefully the, the Zoom technologies will continue to improve as well. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, but what's, what, what's, your, what's your take on that? What's your... You know what has really been great about Zoom is the breakout rooms. <laughs> talking about zoom technologies because there's just about everything can be accomplished now and yeah. it, it, it took a pandemic to force technology to that point because it was pretty cumbersome in those first couple of months and i think there's there's um there's benefits to being in person right there's still certain things that can't be done quite as well you know there's always a place for the whiteboard and the collaborative whiteboard sure. We'll have masks sure. on, but hopefully we'll get to a collaborative whiteboard. But being able to find the best way and the best interaction for individual meetings, um, Zoom can be a lot more productive, right? I can I can chat in the morning with the Minister of Education of Egypt and chat in the afternoon with somebody in California, and um, that's a lot more efficient. Uh, but I, I do think from a global scale, um, there's certain, certainly a lot of cultures that in person is um, it, it in person was always first, yeah. right? Yeah, building that relationship, um, and I don't think actually this kind of transition ever could have happened without something worldwide because everybody sure. had to act the same way. So ideally, we'll get back to a balance, right? And so that we can get the best of in person collaboration, whether it's you know our offices reopening and get that kind of joint innovation but that we would be using that time for the high high productivity activities instead of you know sitting in Washington DC traffic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and something that we don't don't miss that anyway, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hopefully that's never coming back. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. I think we we, we covered a lot of high points here uh, and I hope we can maybe follow up at, at some point in person and 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 talk about how all these improvements have been made in the industry and uh, we'll be at an in-person event, maybe having a, a, a nice lunch or something. <laughs> Even that if you can't do Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, so. I would welcome that.
Well, thanks again. And thanks for everybody for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan. Thank you.